This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be covering the application of AI to pathology. And I'm excited to chat about this because we've discussed before that one of the most effective applications of AI in health has been medical imaging. And there are a ton of images that pathologists look at under a microscope. That's right. Pathologists have a crucial role to play in diagnosing cancer, and their report strongly helps determine a patient's treatment strategies. The images they look at under a microscope are often histology images, which are views of tissues under a microscope. I've most often seen these purple, pink colored histology images. Why do they look like that? Yeah, well, most cells are colorless and transparent. So these tissues have to be stained in some way to make the cells visible. Staining usually works by using a dye that stains some of the cells components a bright color together with a counter stain that stains the rest of the cell a different color. And now the most common staining system is called H&E or hematoxylin and eosin, which are the two dyes it contains responsible for the purplish blue and the pink colors that you see in these images. I love that. And they are really beautiful looking. And so the pathologist looks at these H&E stained images and creates a pathology report based on what he or she sees under the microscope. And am I right that in that report, they're describing things like the types of cells they see or how the cells are arranged or whether the cells are abnormal and any other features that are important for a diagnosis? That's right. Now, one set of AI technologies has been directed towards simplifying these routine workflows that are currently entirely performed by human pathologists. So examples of this are the detection of tumor tissue in these biopsy samples or determining the tumor subtype based on the morphology, as is done for prostate cancer samples. Got it. And I can imagine that that could potentially decrease costs and and turnaround time in pathology departments and could also probably reduce misdiagnoses. That's right. Now, one milestone for the field was the 2016 Chameleon Challenge. The goal of this challenge was to develop algorithms to detect cancer metastases in lymph node images. And just to expand on that, as I understand it, the task was for algorithms to look at these scanned microscopic H&E images called whole slide images of breast tissue, and then using these slides, determine the extent to which the cancer has spread, which is important for planning treatment or predicting the course of the disease or predicting the chance of recovery. Exactly. Now, there were several AI algorithms that were developed by different teams. These algorithms were then evaluated against pathologists And it was found that the best algorithms performed about as well as the pathologist did. A team from Harvard Medical School and MIT won first place. And our guest today was actually part of that winning team. Whoa, cool. So this was the 2016 challenge. What have been exciting areas of interest and growth for the field since then? One exciting set of AI technologies has been looking to go beyond the standard reporting that is currently performed by pathologists. These technologies provide clinicians with additional information that is not being extracted in current clinical workflows. 
Got it. So the idea is to extract from histology images completely new information that in the past we didn't even think was possible to extract. Precisely. Over the past few years, we've seen that deep learning algorithms can discover these novel features from cancer histopathology images that make it possible to predict outcomes like survival. And these automatically discovered features perform better than traditional features do, like the stage of the disease. There have been important academic studies demonstrating this for different cancers, including uh, colorectal cancer and liver cancer. And this is not just true for predicting survival, but it's also true for predicting specific genetic defects or molecular subclasses that determine treatment from histological slides, or even directly predict treatment response directly from those images. It's pretty cool that we can derive these insights directly from H&E slides because H&E slides are already easily available from pathology labs for most patients with cancer, right? As, as opposed to using more expensive or time-consuming tests. It is, Adriel, and it will revolutionize the way we're diagnosing and treating cancer patients. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Aditya Kosla, who's the co-founder and CTO of PathAI. PathAI is the world's leading provider of AI-powered technology for the pathology laboratory. One of the things I'm excited to ask Aditya about is his experience as an entrepreneur and hear more about how he thought about creating and funding a successful AI health startup. And before we chat with Aditya, I wanted to ask you, how does a company that's just getting off the ground raise the money that it needs to fund growth? Yeah, so the question you're asking is basically, how to jumpstart the engine. And there are several ways to do it. I would say that on one end of the spectrum is bootstrapping the company. And that's when you basically avoid raising outside money for as long as you possibly can. So maybe the entrepreneur uses personal savings to jumpstart the business, or maybe the founders don't take salaries in the beginning. But mostly the idea is to fund the business through revenue, which of course is easier to do if you have a strong early customer base or some kind of partnership that lets you get to revenue quickly. And there are a lot of benefits to bootstrapping a company. For one, it forces founders to be very disciplined about not spending more money than the company makes. But maybe the most important benefit is that by doing this, the founding team is able to own 100% of the business for a lot longer. Got it. So the idea here is that the company is pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. Exactly. For example, do you know Spanx, the, the shapewear company? Yeah. Sarah Blakely founded Spanx with $5,000 of personal savings in 2000. And today she still owns 100% of the company, which is crazy. She's one of the richest self-made women. That's incredible. But now the disadvantage of bootstrapping is that there may be a lot of things that the company wants to be able to do right out the gate, but can't afford to do without outside funding, right? So like if a founder is going after a big idea or needs to fund product development before they can even generate revenue, then the company is going to need outside funding in order to invest ahead of revenue. And this would be especially true in healthcare. For example, in biotech, companies need to conduct significant research to develop a product and take it through the FDA regulatory pathway. And if you're in healthcare IT, sometimes you need a viable product and demonstrate it improves clinical outcomes before any payers or providers are going to become customers. Exactly. So in general, if a company is going down the path of getting outside funding, 
it's because they know they're going to want to invest ahead of revenue. Right. Now, another big reason that companies will raise money is if there are a ton of competitors in the space. And it's a market in which first mover advantage is really important. A New Yorker article from November quotes a managing partner at SoftBank, which is a ginormous investment firm, as saying, quote, once Uber is founded, within a year, you suddenly have 300 copycats. The only way to protect your company is to get big fast by investing hundreds of millions, unquote. And this mentality has become even more prevalent recently as VCs have raised a lot more money to invest. So companies will try to raise a ton of money to undercut competitors or beat them out on timing in order to become the number one player in the space. Yes. And it's also worth mentioning that today there is a sort of cachet associated with getting an investment from a top venture capital firm. Yeah, it's become a bit of a stamp of approval. Also, remember that fundraising is really taxing and time-consuming for companies. It's distracting from day-to-day operations. So if you get a top VC in your Series B, then the thinking is that maybe it'll be easier for you to raise a Series C when the time comes. Okay, but VCs aren't the only place that outside funding can come from, right? No, you're right. Definitely not. Companies can choose from all sorts of funding sources, from VCs to angel investors to strategic investors, even grants. Can you walk us through those other types of funding? Yeah. So let's start with angel investors. Typically speaking, angels are high net worth individuals that probably know the space really well. Maybe they're former executives or entrepreneurs that can provide both capital and mentorship. A strategic investor is typically a larger company in the space. And generally, when a founder decides to take funding from a strategic, they're looking for more than just capital. They're hoping that the strategic could become an anchor customer or a provider of data or distribution, or maybe they're even hoping the strategic will acquire the company one day. Hmm. One example of this is a company called Able2, which is a virtual therapy provider. And United Health's Optum invested in the company in 2019 and then acquired them this year. I maybe should mention that there can be downsides when it comes to taking on a strategic investor. It can be limiting, especially if you take them on too early in a company's life cycle. For example, if you take on an investment from one big player in the space, maybe that player's competitors won't want to work with you or won't want to use your product because they don't want to support their competitor. Or if a strategic is going to acquire the founder's company, if that strategic is an investor, it could prevent the founder's ability to get the best purchase price out of them. Got it. So that's angel investors and strategic investors. The last type of funding you mentioned was grants. Yeah, so in this bucket, I'd put grants, competitions, prizes. Big examples in healthcare include grants from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Even pharma companies have their own competitions like the Bristol-Myers Squibb Golden Ticket Contest. Grants and prize money are often non-dilutive, which is great, but they can sometimes come with big restrictions around IP or stipulations around access and pricing. So the dilution of equity is not the only thing that founders need to take into consideration. I'll say as an aside that one non-dilutive source of capital is debt, but this is typically reserved for more steady or larger companies rather than high growth tech companies. So that's maybe less relevant to this discussion. And what does it mean for funding to be non-dilutive? Yeah, this is really important. So for most of the sources of funding that we just discussed, in exchange for capital, founders will need to give up a percentage of their company, which is called dilution. The investors are buying a portion of the company, and in doing so, they dilute the founding team's ownership. But the bet that the founder is making is that instead of owning 100% of a small pie with no funding, 
she'd rather own a smaller percentage of a much bigger pie with funding. I'm looking forward to chatting with Aditya, co-founder and CTO of Path AI. Prior to Path AI, Aditya completed his PhD in machine learning and computer vision at MIT, where he developed new methods for an array of applications in computer vision, including eye tracking and visualization of deep networks. We'll talk to Aditya about the technology and business of AI and pathology. Aditya, welcome to the AI Health Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Aditya, could you tell us briefly about how you decided to start Path AI? Uh, for maybe 10 years prior to starting Path AI, I was very set on, you know, being in academia. Um, I went through my PhD program, you know, was actually in the middle of interviewing for faculty positions when I met my co-founder, Andy. So the first thing I asked him was like, what is a pathologist? And I was like, I have no idea what a pathologist is, right? Because my background has been entirely in the field of uh, computer vision and machine learning. And I'd never looked at a medical image in my life. And so when I learned that, I was like, wow, this is a super, super important field of you know, cancer diagnosis. And we have the opportunity using technology to potentially help a whole lot of people suffering from terrible diseases. Can you tell us what is a pathologist? Essentially, at least in the space that, that we work in, uh, a pathologist is typically someone who's involved when, you know, suppose a patient gets sick, they go to the clinic, they might do an x-ray, right? So in an x-ray, they find that there's a tumor. Now, what they do with the tumor is, you know, they do a biopsy. So they literally take a needle, stick it into the tissue and take out a small piece of tissue. That tissue is taken out so that you can figure out whether or not the patient has cancer. And that tissue is viewed by a pathologist under a microscope to make that call. What they say can change your life forever, right? Like if you have cancer, that is a momentous life occasion uh, versus if they say you don't, uh, maybe the treatment or path there, thereafter is just, you know, you remove the tumor or you just leave it as is and hope for the best, right? So they make that super, super important distinction. And they are often referred to as the doctor's doctor, uh, which is why most people actually don't know about it. You know about the oncologist who's actually helping, uh, you know, the patient with, with the treatment and the care thereafter, uh, but the pathologist is making that call on, on the diagnosis. So the pathologist is never customer-facing or patient-facing? very infrequently customer-facing. Okay. That's right. What was it that was so compelling about pathology that got you to think rather than going into academia, I should be doing a startup here? Yeah, yeah. Let me continue the story. So basically, as, as I just described, it's a gold standard for medicine with respect to whether or not a patient has cancer. So that was like, okay, this is a super important problem. And then Andy showed me this simple, simple experiment that has jarred me till this day. They took some samples, right, and showed these samples to 30 pathologists. Whether or not a person has cancer should not be a function of the doctor they would go to. Right. right. I'd hope so. Each of these, <laughs> I'd hope so. Right. And so each of these 30 pathologists were viewing the same sample. And you could see that for many of the samples, there was a near uniform distribution of diagnoses of like the pathologist saying the patient has no cancer. So it's benign or they have something atypical or they have full blown cancer. And the treatment plan that you follow for each of these three diagnoses is completely different. And that's scary and, and crazy. So essentially, how can we fix this, right? Yeah. And the stuff that I had been working on in like computer vision, 
it definitely applies here because what you're doing is you're looking at images, right? The models actually exist to apply to these images. As a startup, I don't think we should be developing fundamental new technology. I think that is a big part of what academia does, like looking 10, 20 years into the future. But knowing that, okay, this type of technology exists and we can apply it in the real world so as to build a business around it, that's what a startup is about. Uh, you know, it's just all these things coming together. I literally changed my mind in two weeks from like, you know, 10 years of wanting to be in academia to let's do this. And the rest is history. That's amazing. Can you tell us how Path AI is solving that problem of the multiple potential diagnoses from several pathologists at once? For sure. So the early evidence of this came in this challenge called the chameleon challenge. Uh, which was for diagnosing breast cancer using these pathology images, or these are called whole slide images. So essentially what you can do is you can take uh, samples from this where a pathologist has annotated, this region is cancer, this region is normal, and use that to train algorithms like you know, convolutional neural nets to make a prediction on slides that have not been seen. So what we saw in that challenge is that a pathologist working in a competition setting, meaning the pathologist was told, do the best you can, take as much time as you need, give the best diagnosis possible. On that setting, the pathologist had an error rate of about three and a half percent, while our fully automated system had an error rate of about 0.5%. That was evidence that, hey, we can actually build something to start tackling this problem. If you take a look at these pathology images, you'll see that they're ginormous. So essentially they have on the order of 100,000 cells or more in a single image. So typically you'd actually zoom in and navigate this as though you would Google Maps. And that at the street or when you can see the cars, that's the level at which a pathologist would do a diagnosis of is this cancer or not, right? So our hypothesis, which we've shown now to be true several times, is that there is more information in these images than a human can parse. So can we use that information to actually predict not just the diagnosis, but how long someone will live if they were to take a particular treatment? So can we help them determine, should we take treatment A or treatment B, and which one you would have a higher probability of success? Can I ask a very quick question? When you say that it's that there's more information in the image than a human can parse, is that just because it's so detailed and so granular that a human can't possibly appreciate that in the amount of time it takes? Like how, how long does it take a pathologist usually to evaluate a slide? Three minutes, minutes, 10 minutes? It, it, I, I would say the time varies based on what they're looking for. Uh, but the type of thing that would be very difficult for, say, a human to do, right? So imagine you're seeing 100,000 cells and you want to know, you know, how many of the white blood cells are next to cancer cells in a radii of, say, 10 microns. If a human had to count across all of the 100,000 cells, it would be near impossible, right? It would take very, very, very long. Whereas for a machine, if, they, if it has determined, okay, here's the white blood cells and here's the cancer cells, doing that computation can be extremely efficient and extremely quick. And then you can start having a feature space where you have multiple such features that are difficult to compute. And then you have some sort of combination of them to predict that final outcome, right? So that is a very difficult thing for humans to do in their head. 
And I remember the Chameleon Challenge uh, when it was published in JAMA and uh, you were one of the leading teams, how that sort of changed the field in terms of people's understanding of what AI could do in pathology. On that note, I'm curious to hear from you, what is the difference that you see in terms of development of these technologies in an academic research setting versus in an industry setting? Sure. The thing that might be different between academic and and the industry setting is what we have to do now needs to happen at scale, right? So the field of pathology is quite fragmented in that, you know, I can't build one model to like solve all the problems, right? Because different organs look different under a microscope. And so you'd build different models to understand different diseases and different indications. And in order to do that, you need to build systems that scale up to, you know, get annotations very, very quickly to develop these models extremely quickly. You want to standardize a lot of the processes so that, you know, you're building 50 or 100 models in a year with a very limited set of people versus, you know, just trying to do one of these in academia. So for example, in the chameleon data set, I might be forgetting, it's been a few years, but from the author's I know it took them a year or a couple of years to collect that data set. At PathAI now, we can probably collect one of the same size in a couple of days or something. So figuring out how to scale this operation up is essential, I feel, for for the success. And I'd love to understand how you developed in terms of the problems that you were interested in solving from the cancer diagnosis task that you described to a setup of which treatment works A or B going from diagnosis to treatment, you want to identify where value comes from for your customers. The thing that healthcare systems tend to care most about is the impact to patients, not as much workflow efficiency. So even though the diagnosis had improved, the way most labs perceive that improvement is that this might help make my workflow more efficient. They, they just perceive it as a workflow optimization. And that actually is very difficult to sell in, in healthcare. Finding something that has higher value, like predicting treatment, was essential to getting us to where we are today. Can you actually talk a little bit more maybe about the pushback that you got? You you mentioned that it can be difficult to sell in healthcare, and I think that's not unique at all to Path AI. I think in a lot of healthcare startup companies, you're sort of running into this problem where your potential customers are the people that you might be replacing one day. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what kind of pushback you got, what were the arguments against using your solution? So to begin with, right, like one of the most basic ones is that unlike, you know, radiology, pathology hasn't gone digital, even though the hardware is available to to make that happen. So there's a big investment required by labs to set up this thing before any AI can even be used. And these scanners cost on the order of, you know, 300 to 500K, which makes the investment a non-trivial one, especially when these labs are operating in a relatively low margin business. They don't have a lot of surplus funds to invest in improving things that have not been demonstrated a few times over. Essentially, then you need to find someone who's willing to take that leap to illustrate that point. That's one angle. The other angle is that it does take time before labs will adopt these solutions because you know we need to go through, say, an FDA clearance or approval process because the labs don't want to take on the liability of using something that may not have been cleared through the FDA. And just because I have a single test for one particular thing that gets FDA approved or cleared, 
the lab is going to think, all right, I have a number of samples coming through, but only a small fraction is this. Is it worthwhile for me to switch over my workflow just for this really small fraction of samples? So that means that, you know, you need to start having two or three or four or, you know, 10 tests on market before labs are willing to adopt. But how are you going to survive that is a question, right, as a, as a startup. Have you guys been FDA approved? Uh, we are working on it for certain indications, but we have also tried to build a business that does not require that as step one. And I assume you have to work with the scanner companies as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of these partnerships that one has to put in place. Aditya, one of the questions I'd like to ask you, which is a big and important question that faces a lot of technology at the intersection of AI and medicine, is the interaction between the product and the people who use it. And on this note, one of the important aspects is explainability. Now, some of your work with your lab mates on class activation mapping, highlighting areas of the image, which uh, a model shows is most important for a prediction, is uh, widely used in the community, maybe one of the most popular methods. So I'd love to understand from you how important is it to you and your users that the AI is explainable? I think that's a great question. I have a little bit, maybe more of a cynical view on this, but I, I would say it probably varies from field to field. My personal take is, I don't know how important it is that it is explainable. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm very excited and happy about the work that we did back, back at MIT, but we, we have not used it so much at PathAI, primarily because the output that we generate is usually explainable enough. For example, on a pathology image, what we would generate is, okay, here is the cancer regions and here is the normal regions. And based on this, here is the overall output that I'm predicting, right? And so the pathologist can review the heat maps and say, okay, I agree or I disagree with, with this prediction. They don't have to go down to like the neuron level for a confnet to say, why did you make this prediction, right? Um, and the other thing that actually makes the part about predicting treatment even more interesting is that that whole thing is so complicated that there's no way that you're going to be able to explain why, but you don't have to, because even if you can do, you know, five or 10% better than humans, that in and of itself is already so valuable for, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And of course, most importantly, the patients, right? Because they now, you have essentially increased the probability of being alive by five to 10%. Um, and just another angle to this, which, you know, people often think about, like, how is FDA going to think about this? Or how are we going to, you know, approve this type of stuff if you don't understand how it works, right? But if you look at most, not most, but a large fraction of drugs that work, you don't actually know what the mechanism is through which they work, right? But you demonstrate through experiments, if a person consumes this drug, this is the effect I intend that will happen, and it happens. Excellent, right? What you're looking for at the end is that effect. So if you can demonstrate that effect, you don't need to explain how the model did it, just like you don't need to explain how the drug did it. You want to follow good experimental procedures, but beyond that, you have demonstrated it works. So Aditya, tell me if I'm getting this right, but it sounds like Path AI started out sort of envisioning that this would be a tool that pathologists used to create more accurate diagnoses or that physicians in general would use. And that now you're sort of realizing that maybe you can have more effect in the drug discovery space. And so you're starting to partner more with pharma companies. Is, is that right? 
to a reasonable extent. I think we have been doing that for a long time. And basically we discovered, you know, through significant market analysis that going down diagnosis is going to be a difficult, difficult journey. And so, yeah, it was very early on that we started partnering with pharmaceutical companies, but we do work with labs as well. It is sort of a combination. I think it's a matter of how do you sequence revenue generating opportunities? Do you find that that's a common path, for lack of a better word, for early stage healthcare tech companies that they sort of start out with one idea that they think will be maybe in the clinical setting and then end up sort of being invested in by a lot of these pharma companies and then partnering with them as a result? I'm guessing that is going up now, but there have also been, I think, companies that have, I don't know, stuck their ground and tried to go through, go through the whole FDA approval process and so on, and you know, then built tests and been extremely successful. Um, I, I think it honestly comes down to what is the gold standard or ideal that, that you're after, right? For me, the people motivating me are more the, you know, Google co-founders or Facebook co-founders building a technology company versus typical biotech does tend to have very long lead times to generating revenue, right? And the other things you think about as a founder is dilution and, you know, how much are you giving away your company? In biotech, typically you end up giving away a very large fraction. So uh, you don't see as many... I don't know, biotech billionaires or something, right? As you see from the tech side, when you have revenue to build your company off of, the company can be self-sustaining versus for biotech, you need to have that seven to 10 year time frame and essentially keep getting capital, hence keep getting diluted. Like you're just running a different style of company. Uh, so it really depends on what your goals are. And, you know, I don't think one is better than the other, but it's more just how you perceive the world and what your goals are. Based on that, you, may, you, know, you make that call. This is maybe a little personal, but I'm kind of curious how that made you feel. Just as a founder, you sort of start this company thinking, I'm gonna build this product that helps cancer patients. And then you sort of pivot and you are still down the line and it's just you know maybe not as immediate as you had hoped, but was that disappointing a little bit for you at the beginning? Oh no, I, I actually feel like it's a better outcome. Like, cause before, you know, when you're just improving diagnosis, it might be incidental that you're improving patient outcomes, right? So one example is in our like chameleon challenge, what we had found is that like the reason we were much better than pathologists in some cases was because we were identifying the really small tumors. One might say, oh, that's great. You know, you're, cancer, you're catching cancer early. But on the other hand, I don't know if there've been clinical studies to show this, but the way the guideline works is if a tumor is smaller than a certain size, it may not matter, right? So it may not actually impact the patient outcome. So what if you found it? And so now the work that we're doing will clearly improve patient outcomes, right? Otherwise it just cannot be deployed in the clinic, right? Because we're building tests that predict outcomes. If you don't predict better than humans, your test is useless essentially. So once you're doing better than humans, you're saving lives. So uh, it's honestly more inspirational uh, than I think how, how it might have uh, started out. You mentioned Aditya that you work both with labs and with pharma companies. I'm curious, when you were starting out the company, how did you think about getting your early adopters? Um, how did you think about these are going to be my first three customers? This might be scary for you know people trying to found companies from technology side, but 
honestly, one of the biggest things for us to get those first few customers and how we thought about it was just through the, you know, Andy's network, right? And the reason people were willing to talk to us was because of Andy being who he is and having that, you know, medical background and being able to speak the, you know, bio side of the language, right? And so our way of thinking about it, I mean, it was more like, okay, we want to go down this particular direction more towards pharma instead of clinics. Um, and then it's a lot based on, you know, the, the contacts that you have. And the reason that we had them was because of Andy. Uh, now, one point I'd, I'd love to touch on is uh, you said you work with pharma and in pharma, uh, what are they doing? Yeah. So essentially how it works is uh, you're analyzing data from completed clinical trials. So what they do is they give us samples that are like, okay, here's the pathology sample and conditioned on this treatment that we gave them, the patient lived for X amount of time, right? Like maybe one year, a different patient lived for three months, a different patient lived for two years and so on. Our goal is to build these tests that can predict the patient outcomes and or analyze the data that is given to us. So using those tests, we can then put them in clinical trials to potentially you know, validate them or use them for uh, exploratory reasons for uh, patients who are currently enrolling in clinical trials. And if those tests are successful, we can deploy them as uh, companion diagnostics, which means that you have a test that is distributed to patients widely, you know, where their physician can order the test and say, is this patient a good candidate for this drug or not? Right. And so it is the whole gamut that you have to cover in order to successfully impact patient outcomes. The thing is that it's, it's definitely not a foolproof or fail-proof technology. The hypothesis is that there is information in these images. And in some cases, the information lies outside the image. So you have to take multiple shots before you discover one that actually works. So I just want to make sure I understand it. So the drug company has a whole set of clinical trials where they have data on both the uh, whole slide images and also the, the patient outcomes. You take that data and build a model that can predict potentially patient outcomes, give that model back to the drug company. I mean, you give the, in, the, the, in, the insights back to them. The insights back to them. And then what yeah. do they do with those insights? So they can use the insight to say, okay, this, you know, this test that you're building can actually help improve the prediction of patient outcomes, right? And so I want to plug it into a clinical trial. So essentially the idea there would be, I have a drug that works, but it doesn't work on all patients. For the patients that it works on, it works excellent, but I don't have a way to determine who those patients are that it will work on. I see. Okay. The drug company is using the model to figure out potentially why, but at least who the drug isn't working on so that they can figure out why down the line. They could either figure out why or just use the test directly, right? Like you could have a test that patients go through to say, am I a good candidate for this drug? Yes or no? If yes, take it. If not, take an alternative treatment. So are you building an interface for them to be able to use? Uh, for drug companies or for patients? The drug company. Yeah. So yeah, we have software for the drug companies that they can use to interact with the results that we generate uh, based on the models that we build on, on the data that they share. So that's interesting because it leads me to my next question, which is, I think one of the things that's always worried me a little bit about the business of AI is that it feels very 
customer centric. It feels almost like a services business and, and less like a software business and a sort of a traditional SaaS company. So can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced in terms of scaling Path AI? And because and, it sounds like maybe you'd have to maintain this product that you're creating for drug companies for them down the line. And that sounds expensive. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, I think it is true that you're building different models. Like it seems like a service. I think the trick is how can you make the building of these models so simple and efficient such that someone who's not trained in machine learning can actually do it, right? And so there have been a few startups and, you know, even big companies that have tried to do this that were like, upload your data and, you know, we'll build a model for you. I would say most of those things have not worked because they've tried to go too broad and say, I'll do it for any field everywhere. Whereas if you start narrowing down the field like we have in pathology, you can start uh, getting some of this automation happening much, much more frequently. So essentially what we now have are you know, standardized model architectures that capture certain types of information that we know pathologists capture, as well as ways to generate annotations extremely quickly and, and at scale. And you essentially standardize the process. So I can tell you our system is simple, but it works really well. You will be able to apply it repeatedly across different data sets. The more you start getting super bespoke to a single data set, the more you know, your system becomes brittle and like, it will take you months and months to get it to work on a new one because uh, you have over-engineered it. So it is sort of that fine line of like sufficient engineering. So it's good or great, but not so much that it gets just overly complicated and over-engineered to give you the you know, 1% that may or may not actually make a real difference in the end. I think that's a that's a very interesting trade-off for AI because uh, unlike software, which can be produced once and then sold many times to different customers, in AI, we care about generalizability, but at the same time, we also care about it working really well for the consumer at that point in time. I'm curious to to hear from you. So let's say I were a drug company that wanted to start working with Path AI. What would be the the cycle um, for us to work together and for me to get a product from you that does whatever my task of interest is? Yeah. So I mean, generally, the the way it works is you know they would share their data set with us. Like, and it would be a blank data set, meaning that it would be just images and, you know, how long uh, people associated with those images uh, live for. And we would essentially then take on the entire task of getting it annotated, building models to predict those outcomes and sharing those insights back, back with the customer. And so when they see those insights, they might decide, okay, these look great. We want to build a test that, you know, when a new patient comes in, uh, outside of the clinical trial setting, they can administer this test to determine if they're a good candidate for this drug or not. And now how much of the data that you've already collected, how much does that help in terms of making the solution work for this new data set? So that can actually be extremely helpful. Like, so we have a lot of data that we've generated. I, I'm guessing we probably have the most, you know, pathology annotations in the world. Um, I, I might be wrong, but um, that is extremely helpful, especially when there are indications that we have seen before, right? So uh, for example, say lung cancer, we might have seen a whole lot of lung cancer. So we have a ton of data from before that we can use to develop better models with 
either you know less data or uh, just be able to build them much more quickly. So that is definitely an important resource that we have generated over time. But the thing to remember is that only the targeted data helps, right? And because the space is so fragmented, you may not actually have all the data in this in the area that you're developing your model in. So we're still filling in holes from the the entire field of pathology. Now, one of the interesting uh, questions that people have is whether AI would replace replace a clinical expert. I think one of the things that we're also seeing happening in AI is a lot of automation, as you mentioned, to actually replace parts of what a machine learning engineer does. So I'm curious, how much time do you expect before Path AI would not need uh, a computer scientist or a machine learning engineer and would just be able to run seamlessly with a new consumer if you do see that world happening? I, I don't see that world happening. Like, I, I think the field of AI is developing so rapidly, right? Like, you want to keep up with the latest and greatest inventions and advancements as, as they occur. And for that, like, you're going to need software engineering and you're going to need uh, machine learning engineers. The other thing is that, think about, like, a Google, and it works perfectly for so many people hitting it, but there's so many people continuing to, you know, maintain, run the systems, continue to increase the scale and improve performance. And that is going to happen in, in you know, any space you're in, right? So ho- hopefully, you know, if you're successful uh, and continue to grow the business, I, I would say the need for those folks will only go up, uh, not down. But it, it would allow us to distribute the work, I guess, more efficiently and, and get the work done more efficiently if we can make the process of building models more efficient. When you think about Path AI's competitive advantage, would you say it's the technology? Would you say it's your partnership? Sort of how do you think about your competitors and how you get your edge? I think it's complicated. So there's a combination of, of factors, right? I mean, I think technology is great, but it is, I, I think technology overall is probably not a sustaining advantage, right? Like it is, you know, you can have it early on, but you can always assume people will catch up. I think over time, the, the way to have a sustaining advantage is probably through, you know, the whole ecosystem that you build around the technology, how you think about the business model, how you have relationships with your partners that you're working with, uh, how many gaps you fill in with respect to, you know, FDA clearance or approval required for things that you're building. Having that infrastructure is, is essential. Um, as well as, you know, some of it, I think, comes down to your strategy and mindset. You got to make some, some bold moves in order to push the field forward. I, I know there are many things where we are, you know, tinkering with stuff that doesn't like to be tinkered with and not just following, you know, the path of least resistance, I guess. You had mentioned early about raising capital and dilution. And I'm kind of curious how you thought about raising capital for Path AI. You know, I, I guess I think in terms of other tech companies, you can sort of bootstrap it. Is it possible to bootstrap a healthcare AI company? And how did you think about who you were raising from? Was it strategic investors? What did you feel your VCs needed to know to be able to be a good partner? Yeah, it is possible to bootstrap, but I think it is extremely difficult. It takes many more years for you to get to the point that you might have gotten with more capital. So you kind of have to weigh both of those sides. Uh, the, the thing that happens when you have revenue is, you know, you can get a better like valuation, hence less dilution as you go into raise capital. Uh, the other things that are extremely, extremely important is figuring out 
who to get money from. Like for me and Andy, you know, we're first time founders. So we've always uh, opted to get people on our board and, you know, people around us who are way smarter, way more successful and can help us navigate this, this complicated space. We've definitely not gone with people just because of like, oh, this is the highest valuation. So let's go with this investor. But instead, who's going to be on our board is critically important because they have such a big impact on, you know, how we perceive the world. And frankly, we just learned so much from, from those folks. And, you know, I think strategic investors and so on, those come into the picture depending at, the, at different stages of the company, right? Like it's, it's, it's all complicated. You have to go look at the investment thesis of different strategic investors and why they would invest in the company. Some of them are doing it because they want to acquire. So you have to take a lot of those things into account. It may bring more, more business uh, because, you know, the strategics will have a closer partnership with you. Um, so for us, at least, I think in the very early stages, we opted more for like VC capital. So we worked with, uh, you know, General Catalyst earlier on um, and smaller funds earlier. And then Series B was more General Atlantic and a few strategics uh, such as BMS and Merck who have, it was the right time to, to have them involved. This has been uh, fascinating. We've, we've touched on the technology. We've touched on the business. I'd love to loop back into what you said towards the start of you starting a company for the first time, uh, coming from academia. I'd love to close with asking you, what are some of the things that surprised you most about starting an AI and healthcare company? I'll, yeah, maybe I'll say two things. One, that healthcare is a difficult field. You know, in hindsight, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but, you know, in the U.S. especially, it's extremely, extremely complicated. There's so many people involved in providing care to patients and incentives are aligned in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the other thing that, uh, I don't know, this might be kind of controversial, but I like to be controversial sometimes, is how much I actually really liked it and how different uh, it was from academia. Uh, and how, you know, it worked actually for me. Uh, so one of the things, and I learned this after stepping out of academia, and maybe this is just me, uh, was how often, uh, you know, we, like academia tends to talk about collaboration and all of that. And then when you actually look at the incentive structures in academia, they're not actually well aligned towards collaboration. Because, you know, people are like, I'm going to be, you know, first author for the, the graduate students, for the faculty, it's often like, who's going to be last author? People are actively discouraged at times from collaborating because, you know, the paper may or may not count towards your tenure and so on. Um, it can at times be a challenging field to navigate. While when you come to industry, the nice thing is all of us have stock, right? When, when I win, you win, right? That is a nice, awesome feeling. I mean, maybe I took those metrics too seriously through my PhD, but uh, I can tell you, you know, once like stepping out of that, like I could feel those, the true collaboration uh, sort of happening where our incentives are aligned. We want the same thing. Like we're going to go after it and it doesn't matter, you know, if I'm doing it or Andy's doing it or, you know, other people around me are, are helping. We are in it together to make the mission of the company come true. We're not in it for individual glory, essentially. That was most certainly a surprise for me. And it wasn't something that I had gone in with both eyes open, but I love it. Aditya, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. For sure, for sure. Happy to do it. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Aditya Kosla for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. 
And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. Many thanks to Marissa Bertarelli for her wisdom on the space and to consulting producer Margaret Catcher. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.